Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. I'm Chris O'Fault, Deputy Editor of Film and TV Craft at IndieWire, and today we get to talk about one of my favorite films of the year, Green Knight, with cinematographer Andrew Dros Palermo and writer-director David Lowry. I think this is David's like third or fourth time on the podcast. I love talking to him. My support for this podcast and the following message comes from MGM Studios, a United Artists releasings, No Time to Die. Daniel Craig includes his five-film portrayal of James Bond, No Time to Die. He's joining forces with his MI6 team and a new generation of agents. Bond faces the highest stakes of his espionage career and emotionally explores the sacrifices of heroism. You can watch No Time to Die everywhere you rent movies for your consideration in all categories, including Best Picture of the Year. Both of you, thank you for doing this. I didn't get a chance to... I wasn't doing theaters this summer, so I didn't get a chance to to see it until the fall and uh it killed me when i saw it to not be able to talk to you guys about it but so i'm glad for for us to do this now because it's 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 remarkable i was thinking about it you know i i don't remember which one of you or maybe it was both of you were posting pictures from ireland during production and when i read about this i always had this idea of um you know i've been to ireland like beautiful photography but that was something that was leaning into that kind of mystical green Ireland. And there's some stuff in there that's, that's there. But when I saw the film, what was stunning to me was how bold in terms of color, in terms of the cinema and, and what you did to that landscape and, and every scene, every section seems to have a new, beautiful, different look to it. I think my first question is, I'm sure David, you had a vision of this, but how much of that, had to become into a reality of going to Ireland and finding these locations in these places and, and, and to a certain degree of um, considering how how stylistic and film forward this is, you know, how much of this could it be in your head removed from actually walking around locations with Andrew and seeing what's possible? My memory of it now that it's been like three years since we first started location scouting for it is that I did have like a, a, a vision to some extent, but that a lot of it was defined by our scouts and by the, the locations that we visited because the script was so new. It was like just, you know, fresh off the printer and then we just hopped on a plane and went to go find places that we could shoot it. And so while I probably had like various things in mind ahead of time, so much of it was defined by those, those locations. But often we found things that fit perfectly with the script and the, the opening shot of the animals in the in the farmyard and the window that was that was written and then we found a castle that just happened to have a, a window in exactly the right place with a little alcove for dev to sleep so we often found things that worked perfectly but we also definitely you know threw a lot of original ideas away as we found new locations or things that would work for us I, I, that opening sequence one of the things that instantly kind of strikes me is the way that that is shot and um, it's edited. There's something kind of Wellsian in terms of this elusiveness and of walking through there. I think of that opening and I think of the way that that is shot and edited. Is that something where something like, I know you have that opening shot through that window, but then walking through all those, that space with Dev and the way that that was shot and edited, is that something because of the nature of this film, you kind of were thinking about while, that comes to you while you're on that location and on that set and planning it out with Andrew? I think that was, that was a, a, you know, a two shot conjunction, that opening shot, which, you know, setting aside the opening shot of his head catching on fire, the opening shot of him waking up from the dream, the water being thrown in his face. And then, you know, 
wandering through the, the House of Tolerance, it was definitely like designed to take us from this very rigorous, stately, formal, you know, sort of imagery to something that was a little bit more chaotic. And I, I recall, Andrew, you know, we went to one castle on our first scout and we're wandering down a spiral staircase and we're like, it'd be so cool to do a shot where like we're just following Darwin down a spiral staircase for the entire like twisty length of it. And at the bottom of it, he just vomits because he's been going in circles for so long. And so the whole sequence was, I think, sort of designed to get us to that point. And we shot that. It's not, we cut it out of the movie, but that was like, how can we get from this place of like resolute stillness to a guy like so bewildered by his, you know, circumstances that he just winds up, you know, vomiting in an alleyway. And so that's what you're feeling there is that, is that, is that style morphs and transforms and changes over the course of that opening sequence. I thought you adapted that well too, David, because we, we didn't initially get what we wanted. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't go down that spiral staircase as we had hoped, but then also our original plan was for him to be out in the sort of, main thoroughfare and vomit and that didn't really work as we had hoped either and you then when we did pickups you found a new way to do that intense energy where he's chasing um alicia um and the way that that stuff cuts i i don't think i fully understood what you were what you were after when we were shooting it but the way that it cuts is very frantic as chris is saying um and i think i've mentioned to you before that that whole portion just flies by i forgot about that that was one area where we we had a very small set and i was like if we just keep shooting on a lateral dolly track repeatedly, we can make it feel a lot longer than it actually is. Well, Andrew, it seems like, and I, I was going to save this for later, but since we're already on this scene, the camera movement, there's a lot of movement here. There's a lot of tricky shots here. I, I, I can't imagine I, you're, you're going around Ireland with the uh, huge grip trucks here. I mean, is a lot of it, is it a lot of it kind of adjusting to the locations? Is it, is it problem solving? Cause I mean, I, I, I I, I still don't, you know, there's that shot of Dev on a horseback going like for three minutes. And it looks like as far as I can tell, it's mud, and, you know, and then going through these spaces and stuff is it was was camera movement something that you I mean, obviously, David's got a vision, but it's also something where you're kind of problem solving and trying to adapt to to what you have. Yeah. I mean, I think also we had we had a wonderful key grip, um, Philip Murphy and his crew, um, and he had every tool we could need. And, you know, if I scheduled it in advance, he was more than happy to help us out. So, um, you know, like the one you mentioned with the mud that went horribly awry and wasn't exactly what we intended, but, but, you know, the horse kept wanting to get on the track that we were on. We laid out these rubber mats for our, our tracking vehicle and the horse was, you know, trudging through the mud and also just was like, Oh, there seems to be an easier path. If I just come over here by this car, which caused all kinds of problems for us. Um, but you know, the, the great thing about that scene is both Barry and Dev are just on fire and Barry in particular, I could just watch all day just doing his whole thing. And, um, you know, you don't actually even notice there's some, some rockiness in that. And a couple stitches that David does, um, through some fog where he makes blends a couple takes and the performance has really helped that. Yeah. We had so much smoke blowing through that scene and always would like just occlude the, the lens at just the right point where I could like make an edit if I needed to. <laughs> You know, dude, I'm sure there's stuff that you couldn't do, but it, it does feel, considering, I, I'm guessing this is not a huge crew. I'm guessing you are moving, changing locations a lot. You're not in the easiest places. Am I wrong about that? Never, never an easy location. Yeah, never really a move, though, however. We didn't really move much in one day. Maybe within the same area, but we wouldn't, you know, pack up a whole truck and drive an hour or something, let's say. But, um, you know, it was a generous schedule given, um, given the movie and that... Uh, 
you know, I think his hats off to our producers for finding the time for us to, you know, make a meal out of long shots like that. That was what I was going to say, David. It doesn't, I'm sure there's stuff that you couldn't get, but it doesn't feel like you, there's a lot of very bold, high angle, lots of moves. It doesn't feel like necessarily you had to necessarily pull back too much for something like this. Um, and maybe that was, that was, uh, vital to you, but it, 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 that's what struck me more than anything is I'm watching this Irish countryside and, 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 and how much there is movement or there are hard shots or the cameras going upside down. It doesn't seem like you had to sacrifice much at all considering where you were. No, we didn't. I mean, there's always an appetite for more. We were incredibly ambitious with this movie. And as we went through the process of prepping it and then shooting it, our ambition grew consistently. Um, this originally was going to be a very, very small movie, and it very quickly became something that, while, as Andrew said, was like healthily scheduled and, and relatively healthily budgeted as well, it was still, we were biting off way more than we uh, probably should have, given you know, what we actually pulled off. But it was, it was always the intention to be bold and to make you know, strong statements, and sometimes that involves just being as simple as you can possibly be, but other times involves, you know, things that are deceptively tricky, like having a three minute long tracking shot with a horse, which we did twice. There's two scenes with that. One of which is one of one of which is silent, but the other one has nothing but dialogue. And so things like that, which are very simple on paper, wind up being uh, really, really tricky and hard to pull off. But then there are other things like the three the three sixty degree shot in the forest where Deb turns into a skeleton, which I thought was gonna be harder than it was, but it was almost hysterical how like simple that was and goofy it was to shoot. Yeah. That was a three take scene. I think there was just three. And, and I just remember when we got that shot, everyone applauded and it, you could feel it. I really love those kinds of shots that, you know, right then that you got it. How did you both speak uh, um, and kind of plan out in terms of color and, um, and just tint and it, it, there's, there's just amazing uses of color in the photography here and it often, in nighttime, daytime, weather, it seems to, each section has just this beautiful, um, perfect, like, color and, and sense of weather to it. How did you guys talk about this in terms of um, sections of the films and overall color palette um, and, and how it would evolve? It's been so long now, I don't really recall the specifics. But I know that I know that color was like it was it was intended to be a very colorful film. We wanted it to be really rich with color. All of the reference materials we had, aside from a few black and white films, were very colorful. A lot of like you know um, John Waterhouse paintings. And I know that we had plotted out like we had charted out like a development of color over the course of the movie and the way in which green would begin to impose itself uh, on the story, on the narrative, um, as a color that is central to the story. Yeah, I think we also kind of, we sort of started, David, with that really intense look at the very end of the movie and then kind of backed ourselves in from there. Like, how do we get to here? And what are the other places that um, we can explore some color in? Like, we knew Winifred's cottage had some potential to have color, but we weren't exactly sure what. Um, and then I think even at some point in post-production, you were like, what about red? And so when he goes under underwater, you know, we were always looking for these ways to to find other places to add color so that it wasn't just at the end, it gets really feverish. And at the beginning, it's very blue. And, um, you know, we were looking for other places to add pops of color. So there were, the, there were thematic ideas to it, like in terms of like, you know, letting the, you know, 
principally letting green gradually introduce itself into the story in a very definitive way, although when you break it down, like on a color spectrum, there's not actually that much green in the movie, but you get the feeling of green infringing upon, imposing itself upon the frame. But definitely, like, you know, I think Andrew Wade color-coded the different types of magic in the movie, and, and then, like, yeah, with Winifred's, it was, it was sort of like an opportunity to, it was our one night exterior, basically, and we're like, how can we make this feel distinct? And we kind of, like, fell in love with the idea of treating it like a Hammer horror film, which really has those, like, those rich blue nights. Yeah, and we had tested a bunch of blues in advance of that scene, too. Of like, what, what's the blue we like for this scene? I remember that was on the early camera test um, and, and finding the blue that we liked that mixed with our LUT and, you know, with, with Gawain's costume. And um, we landed on, I can't recall what it's midnight blue or something like that. It was a gel color. And Andrew, you're not bringing in a lot of additional light, are you, for these exteriors? Um, for night exteriors, yeah. But for daytime, it was largely just negative fill or some bounce. Um, maybe an eye light here or there, but for daytime, almost no lighting. You know, like in the green chapel later on, that's all, that's largely lit by day, but you know, I would, I had something over the top that I could control how much day was coming in or out and I could lift it up and down and, you know, move it based on which direction the camera was facing. So it was largely just a, a game of controlling the sun more than uh, trying to overpower it. And what about in terms of, I, I, in that sense of because some of these exteriors, I'm sure some of it might be post-production, a collaboration with uh, a lot or a, or a colorist. I, I don't know, but what are you? What are you? Is this filters? Are are, are you guys doing? At some time, it felt like maybe there was Vaseline on the lens. I don't know. It just felt like there's, there's so much richness here that was. I mean, this, these locations would photograph beautifully, but there's like a layer on top of this. I'm wondering, you know, considering you're, you're best basically kind of controlling the fill to a certain degree, what, what, what are you guys doing? And yeah, largely the coloring was done in post, but, you know, I would do on, on the daily, I would color um, with the DIT, getting it to a, a ballpark of where I, where I wanted it later. So it wasn't as though we just got into color timing later and we just said, oh, let's, let's have some fun and create some colors. It was already sketched in. Um, it just got a lot more nuance later at Photochem with Alistair Arnold. And, um, but yeah, there was a lot of like, how can we make it feel filthier or hazier or whatever? And it, you're right, Vaseline oh, was, there is Vaseline. <laughs> um, fun to apply. Yeah, there's definitely some Vaseline on the lens and anything that just made it feel colder and harsher. Because we actually, shockingly enough, and I'm so glad that people think that it's a harsh film because we had actually quite lovely weather given um, how bad it can get in Ireland. We had really two days of really hard weather and they they made the screen and that and those really hang heavy over the movie um but largely it was like sunny and we were upset about all the rainbows but i mean we we there's at least one shot where we had to paint out a rainbow because it was just so everything was <laughs> was so clement and it, you know we were this is a movie that's set in the winter and we started shooting in the winter and then it really quickly advanced into a beautiful Easter springtime, <laughs> and we're like, there's flowers growing everywhere, there's sun shining, there's rainbows in the sky, fluffy white clouds, and, and so it wasn't as harsh as we were wanting it to be. We were really, like, at times heartbroken at how nice outside it was, and every, you know, the whole crew was very happy, because they could just wear their shorts and t-shirts, uh, but it was, it was much 
more clement than we wanted, and we were worried about that. So it does it does make my heart happy to hear that everyone thinks it was harsher than it was. Or even just because in the, in the spring, I've been in Ireland in the spring, it's around March, you get that um, misty, very thick atmospheric, you know, kind of gray day, which is present in your film. So it's it's funny to hear that you actually were dealing with, uh, you know, blue skies and clearness that you don't usually have there. There was one day, David, that you canceled the shoot because you it just wasn't right for the. Do you remember it was snowing and feather beds, and you were just like, "This isn't making me happy. Let's go home." It was incredible weather, the type of weather that you know we should always be excited to shoot in, but the sequence we were shooting needed to have an, a sense of optimism to it. It was him. It was him setting out on his journey. That scene where the kids are chasing him, and it was a blizzard blew in, and it was like bleakly cold and oppressive. And there's a few a few shots in the movie um, from that day, like when he's at the crossroads, uh, looking at the skeleton, where you can just see the clouds rolling in the, in the distance, and those landed on us. You couldn't see two feet from you, and like it was exciting and really visually stunning. But what we were trying to shoot that day, we didn't have anything to shoot in that with what with what we had up there on that mountain that would have been you know been able to utilize that weather well. I kind of sometimes think like I should have just improvised more and come up with a new scene. I I've just, I applauded your like this isn't making me happy. Let's go home. It was just so you were just done. I was like, all right, cool, let's go home. It was miserable. It was uh, really cold, but it was it was awesome. I, I have fond memories of that day. David, one thing I really really appreciate, especially in rewatching it, um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, the use of landscape to tell a story. I mean, this in, in some cases, a lot of what you're doing here is threw me back to some of my favorite Westerns from, you know, 50, 60 years ago of how the landscape is changing based on where we are with Dev's character and and what's going on. I'm wondering if you could talk about that in terms of, you know, compositions, but also scouting and how much that was in your mind. Or, or is it one of those you're reacting to a place and being like, oh, this is perfect for that. Sometimes it was that like and, and there was one instance we shot a scene that's not in the movie where we just were like so excited by the location that we added a scene to uh, for, for that spot. And upon shooting, even as we were shooting it, it revealed itself to just be too pretty. And I remember something Jim Jarmusch said when he was making um, Dead Man, which was that he and Robbie Mueller were just like, anytime they found a location that looked like it could be on a postcard, they would reject it because it was that would just make the scene all about that location and that vista. And so we did have like this one location that was an incredible vista and we had this whole scene that we set up there and it just was like, it wasn't right. It wasn't right for the movie. It wasn't right for that point of the story. And, and so we never, it never even made into the cut uh, on you know, pretty much the day we shot it. I was like, I don't think that's gonna make it into the film. Um, and, but we, we were thinking about the trajectory Dev goes on in his journey and that was, playing into that idea of like the snowstorm that wasn't working for us, that was supposed to be the beginning of the journey where he has like a sense of adventure and the horizons are open and clear. And then it gradually gets more oppressive as he goes on. And the landscape gets more treacherous, more dangerous, more bleak, um, and more fantastical. We wanted to bring in a sense of magic as he, as he progresses through his journey, the landscapes get more fantastical. So that was definitely on our mind while we were scouting. Um, we were definitely looking for places that would lend themselves to that journey and to that narrative. And, and then also trying to just, you know, find things that felt right to us on an instinctual level. There were times where you'd be at a location and you're like, Andrew, I remember you just being like, yeah, this isn't, this isn't speaking to me. And, 
and we never could quite say why, although sometimes we could, but often it would just be like, it's not quite right, or like, this forest is just another forest. Why, is, why are we considering this forest versus another forest? Um, finding that river for him to paddle that canoe down at the end, that was a really, really tricky one. Um, and that was one I think, Andrew, I don't know if you remember this, but like on the day, like we had picked one location and we had scouted it at a certain time of day and we're like, okay, this will work. And we got there to shoot and the light was different and it felt really incorrect. And everyone was scrambling, trying to like put greenery in to make it feel better. And, and then we're like, and then you, I, I think you just went, wandered down the bank and found a better spot right around the corner. Yeah, it felt like a park or something, right? It suddenly was just too too maintained or, yeah. I mean, it really does feel, especially because obviously the journey he goes on is is has a certain trajectory to it, but it also, where he is mentally and, you know, and what is real and what is not. And, and each time when you look at those compositions, it's just where he is in that landscape and what that landscape is just feels so spot on with where it is and that's uh, it's it, i mean that's always my favorite thing about my favorite westerns and uh you know i actually ended up rewatching this with uh power of the dog i think that yeah and it was like the same it's like it was so refreshing to see two films do that <laughs> you know back to yeah back to back like that because you just don't see that anymore um i'm wondering if uh, building off that if we could talk a little bit about um choices and then in terms of I, I guess maybe it's format or i don't know lens i mean this is obviously you, you both did ghost story which you boxed yourself in literally with the, you know the the four by three but i'm wondering in that sense and maybe this has more to do with dev's hero journey or the landscape but how did you end up landing on i think you did large format right we um we always knew it was going to be large format like that was just an understood from the get-go because it I wanted it to be big. I wanted to shoot this for IMAX. I wanted. To, I was like, this should be an IMAX movie. And I remember Andrew telling you that I wanted it to feel like it was in 3D without being 3D. I wanted to have that sense of depth and that sense of clarity. I also wanted the movie to have a lot of close-ups in it. And I love large format close-ups on people's faces. It really is really exciting to me. Um, so I wanted the, the close-ups to have the same epic quality that the big wide landscape vistas would have. We tested a couple of different cameras, and but kind of I think knew in our hearts it was always going to be Alexa 65. Do you, you came to me, David, with 185 though? There was no, we never even considered scope in this movie. Do you recall why? Because I wanted it to have that sense of height that you get. I mean, IMAX is the best version of that when you see feel like the screen is just towering over you, and. And so I wanted this movie to have that sort of majesty to it. And I think you get that with narrower aspect ratios. But I didn't want to go into a square ratio because then that would become a statement. 185 disappears. You don't think about it within like a minute of watching it or ever. Whereas if I were to go narrower, you all of a sudden think like, oh, that is a very decisive statement. I wanted, I wanted the aspect ratio to, to disappear instantly. It definitely changed some of the choices of landscapes that we picked because of the height, making sure that we were able to get nice and low on dev to include a bit, you know, a mountain cap behind him or... Andrew, I think I had to tell you at one point, like, remind me to get wider, because I was always wanting to get close to things. And we, we always were trying to, like, you know, make sure these compositions would include, you know, dev, who's like 6'2 or 6'3, plus a landscape, a mountain in the background, and, 
and I was always uh, getting in my own way in terms of getting wide enough because I wanted to get more close-ups. Yeah, and the, the large format thing of, uh, in regard to that as well, Chris, is that I, f- I felt, as David was mentioning, the close-ups, they, they do have a big quality to them because you can still get so wide and so tight to, to someone's face without it being just too distorting of their face while still including all of where he is, which I think is so essential to his journey, you know. Um, there's one where he's kind of carrying his axe in the rain, and you can still feel everything around him, but I feel close enough to be able to read his face so perfectly. Um, you know, I, I really love shooting large format and um, would definitely do it again. The the only problem with it was sometimes the camera movement could be difficult because the camera body was so large, but... Um, that uh, you know, with more money, that's all you can obviously solve that problem. But we always were trying to figure out our grips were sometimes like counterbalancing with rocks they were finding around set or stuff, <laughs> duct taping rocks to the end of the camera. But just to just a quick explainer to listeners that might not be able to follow with what happens with large format is that the larger the format, the wider your field of view is on a lens. So meaning we all know wide lenses. We all know what an 18 looks like and a 50 looks like on 35 millimeter. Suddenly you don't need to go to an 18 to be quite as wide, but you can still have that feeling of a tighter lens, but still go wider when you have large format. It just has to do with the the, the field of view that you have. And so, with, and I think that's also, I think David's point earlier on too, one of the things that I love about the large format is the portraiture is it reminds you me of, of those old, um, those always large format black and white stills you see from uh, the early 20th century too. Cause it's like those, you could be right there with someone and in their space, but not feeling like you're on like a Coen brothers Orson Welles wide lens there. And in some ways I know people think of it as big, but I think it's really sometimes that intimacy and, and, and those close ups that you have and with dev, it's really, um, there's a, there's a sense of his journey and being enveloped in his space and kind of a hero's journey that's really, really beautiful with this. I've found that it's really interesting, uh, considering it from an actor's perspective too, because I've shot another large format movie since this one, and it's like you wind up keeping the camera pretty consistently within five inches of an actor's face. <laughs> and it picks up so much but because it doesn't distort and you want to get that 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 you know, beautiful close-up, you wind up just pushing it right up there, right up against their cheekbones, basically. And I think it's a whole new style of acting when you have to have a camera consistently that close to you. One thing that I really was impressed by with this film also is that, you know, in the beginning, what are those lines? Uh, is this a game? Or, you know, it's like, or I think Alicia says to him in the beginning, the whole, like, this is how dumb guys go to die, or it's like, or it's how they become great men. And I don't know, I, I, maybe I can only speak for myself as a viewer, but I was constantly in this, like, which is this going to be? Is this a silly game? Or is this, you know, and it does get darker and darker, but then it also becomes horrific. But it feels like one of the keys to this film is like, keeping it moving narratively forward. It does get bleaker, but you're keeping that balance of, of what is this, you know, and it, it, is this, how much of this is fantastical? How much of this is, is a game? I, I'm wondering, I mean, that's baked into the whole idea here, but I'm wondering how beyond just script, something like that is, is that something that's hard to balance and maintain? And is that something that really came down to the editing room? I, I'm just curious about, cause I have to imagine that's harder and harder as the film goes on. Not really. I mean, so much of the movie we just took at face value. Like everything was, you know, if an actor were to ask me, is this real or is it in my head? I'd be like, no, this is all just real. Everything in here is real. When 
Alicia shows up playing a second character, is she playing the first character in disguise? No, she's a completely different person that just happens to be played by the same actor. And, and so we just took it all literally at face value. And obviously there's a lot under there. If you start talking about Sarita Shattery's playing the mother, if you start talking about how she interacts with the story and what her intentions are, you, get, you can get really deep really quickly. But on a surface level, if she were to ask me, what am I doing in this movie, uh, in the opening scene, I'd be like, you're casting a spell to bring the Green Knight to Arthur's court, just like in the original poem. And so we just, we, we, we had a very, that, 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 that simplicity, uh, that, that earnestness of our pro- in, in our approach really helped us like navigate those areas that are very readable into-ish. And it also prevented us, it, it saved us from having to like ask ourselves too many questions on set about the meaning of scenes. We, we wanted to really just approach them on a very surface level, knowing that there's a lot more beneath the surface that was just going to be there no matter what. Andrew, I'm wondering about, is that is that also the big thing in terms of photography too, is not thinking like, oh, we're in this mental space or we're in this, you know, it's, it, there's, this is the story, this is the world we're living in. And, and so you're not really thinking about, you're dividing this up more based on sequences. Yeah, I tried, I mean, but I also tried to get as subjective as I could where possible, follow his journey pretty deep into his mind, um, which helps some uh, I think, as David's saying, we could be we could hit it right square, but we could also kind of dance around it a little bit photographically. Yeah, I mean, I, I, for some reason, David was thinking of the scene where um, Sean is knighting Dev um, later in the film, and I, I remember thinking when we were staging that, I was like, is this really happening or is it in his mind? And then I just had a moment of like, it doesn't matter, we treat it as it's happening, as he wants it to feel, and then it made much more sense to me. It was just, and I think that's exactly as you were saying, but it, that is how we approached it photographically as well, as I wanted it to feel momentous. And you even had the great idea of adding this light on top of the bed that feels kind of heavenly, which feels like, I, I think, what Dev might have been feeling in that moment is like he is, um, you know, now heir to this great throne and uh, it should feel very momentous um, and and that sort of earnestness was really helpful for me. I think the more challenging thing for us was was tone and finding that right balance because we always, if there was an opportunity for humor in this movie, we were taking it. We were, you know, there's a scene that's not in it like Dev jumping up and down on a bed just because it was like, oh, there's a beautiful bed with a big uh, soft mattress and you're a character who may not have slept in a bed like that before, so of course you're gonna jump up and down it like a little kid. And it's like we always would like find opportunities to like move towards humor and and then veer away from it when it started to feel like we were pushing it too far. And I think Winifred's sequence walks that line. She and she and the and the scene with Joel Edgerton by the fire. I think really they both walk that line of like being really. Those sequences are really funny, but they never push too far into like parody or being self-referential or self-aware. Um, Winifred almost does, but it, it's walking that line really delicately. And on a filmmaking level, we were trying to do that all the time as well, trying to find that balance in the tone in terms of where we put the camera, what, you know, what, what tone would be emphasizing if we picked one lens over another, things like that. I have to imagine that also continued to be something in the editing room, right? Definitely. Like, you know, I've, I've mentioned a couple scenes already that we just, you know, never, Dev jumping on the bed never made it into the edit. There wasn't a place for it. But um, there were a bunch of sequences that just fell away right away that never even made it into the, um, 
the first cut because they just it, it was clear to us while we were shooting them that they were just like tonally not quite right and we didn't know what the answer was right away but um when you're when you're fumbling in the dark for something that is not quite definable you wind up you know sometimes just going a little too far to the left or a little too far to the right and and those scenes sometimes make it in the edit sometimes you just know right away you don't need to put it in the cut because it's not going to work and other times you you hang on to them for a while because there are aspects of them that you like or things that you're proud of or things that are technically cool that you feel like the movie would benefit from but gradually realize they're they're scenes from a different movie you know i i'd seen elsewhere that you know the film continued to be worked on after you know, the film was supposed to premiere at, at South by and that South by that right when the pandemic broke. And so, um, and I, I read elsewhere that, you know, you've, you spent a lot of time with it after that. Um, and, and that the film might've been a different film and maybe even your attitude towards it, um, had made have changed a little bit. It sounded like it hadn't been an easy time for you in the shoot. And you've talked about that elsewhere, but I'm wondering removed even from that, was this one of the hardest films for you? Was this one of the hardest films to cut, David, in terms of for, for you? In, in, in terms of there's so much here in that balance and finding it? Or did this, did it, or was it, I'm just curious. It felt like Old Man, for example. It felt like that, that just felt like, I think we've talked about that, that it just kind of came. I, I'm wondering if this one was, was anything different. No, it was really hard. It was really like, it was a challenge more than I expected it to be. And, if you were to look at the very first assembly of the movie and then look at the cut that, you know, we were readying for release in 2020 and then look at the finished film, the differences are probably marginal. And they would feel like the differences between a normal rough cut and a finished film and, and so on and so forth. But it was really, I really had trouble believing that I had taken the film as far as it needed to go. And, you know, I'd show it to people and get feedback, and, and it was always generally very positive. But I always was like, there's, we, can't, we can't be done yet. There's more here. There's more to uncover. There's more to do. There's more to pack into the film. There's more to unpack within the film. And I just couldn't let it rest. And because I was doing that with another film in prep at the same time and... Uh, with the release date looming over our heads, I kind of just got into a really negative zone with the movie and was just not letting it be what it needed to be. Like, if I couldn't crack it, if I couldn't crack a scene, I was just going to cut it out of the movie. I was just like, well, I can't figure this one out. It's out of the film. The version that I know, I think we, you know, almost picture locked before the pandemic is roughly the same all the scenes are there we didn't you know i didn't um i added some stuff back in the scene the version that got released this summer it was longer than that version um i had i, I refound i rediscovered my sense of patience and put some scenes back in but it's largely the same structure it's just that the scenes themselves the shape of them changed and the the tone of them changed a little bit and sometimes all you need to do is like add 12 frames to a shot and you're going to change the the perspective of it or the tone of it or the emphasis of it. And it was a lot of like little 12 frame adjustments here and there. Didn't you kind of go through the same process with the ghost story though too, David? It feels like kind of both of those movies from my perspective, at least of when I would get cuts is that, you know, the movie was, as you're calling it nearly, nearly done from, from that first turn in of South by, but 
then there was suddenly I can recall in both of those movies getting another cut where it was like wow it just got very good and I and I couldn't exactly pinpoint why it got good and in the instance of a ghost story what changed exactly but it, the same thing happened here were they similar in that same respect of like having to discover rediscover them yeah except that a ghost story took maybe four months to go from A to B and this one was like a year and a half so it was it was a much longer uh, period of duress with with Peter Pan mixed in right and old man the gun yeah and a pandemic yeah before I let you go both you go I. There was an aspect of this film that, if honestly, if I would, had been able to see it in August, I would have dug into and um, showered her with praise. Um, I would love for you guys to talk about, because I think it's one of these things that's hard to measure for a film like this, because there are these locations, there are these castles, they are, I mean, I don't think there was a lot of builds here. But Jade's work in the production design and, and turning those spaces into something, I'm wondering if you, I don't know if there's an example or something, but it just seemed like such remarkable work when we think about being on these locations and, and moving like you guys were um, and, and what she brought to this project. I mean, can't make a movie without Jade Healy. <laughs> Definitely, like, there are a lot of builds, in fact. There, there were. Okay, I didn't know that. And the Great Hall, it's Camelot, that is a, 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 the primary example because that was a, a full build. And... It was a build that was bigger than the stage we built it on. Like it actually like stretched all the way out into the parking lot, and it took the entire duration of our shoot. It was like the last thing we shot was that sequence because that's how long it took to build that set. Um, we weren't able to have it ready any earlier. Um, but a, a really good example would be Winifred's cottage, which is on the exterior, uh, a practical location on a little sheep farm then the interior was on stage and the exterior we found that on our very very first location scout and it was like a much more i, would, I wouldn't say a modern house but it was you know probably for probably maybe like 100 years old at this point and we wrote it off as being like not quite right for what we were looking for for winifred's but then jade went back to that location and looked at it when she got to ireland and saw what it could become, saw the way that that house sat in the landscape with those trees behind it, and saw that there was a, you know, ample field in front of it in which she could dig a pond, and looked at the original holy well, where the real St. Winifred had her head cut off, and, and looked at the cottage there that, that that saint had actually lived in, and saw a way to transform this, this house from the early 20th century into something from the 14th century and then found a way to replicate the interior on stage in a way that would suit our needs. Yeah, and she'd done that as well with um, uh, Gawain's home when he's in his house. It was such a, I, I never could quite see it until it was done. I just did not understand how, this was a pre-existing barn that she had kind of built a fireplace into and brought some tables into, and um, that, was, uh, that was something I could just not see. I couldn't understand the appeal until it was finished, and I was like, okay, this is amazing, actually. It was challenging for me because the windows were incredibly tiny and very deep, but um, totally a great little location as well. I have to imagine that 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 large build was also got to be a tough shoot for you, right, Andrew? That was there's a lot with the lights and the visual effects. And he and, and as David mentioned, we were all the way up against the perm, so the 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 Great Hall's dome was touching the metal metal perm, so it's not as though I was gonna hang lights above it and had very little place to put things. Um, but it was also that that scene for me more not because of that 
was hard. It was more just how much happens in that scene. You know, he comes in, he has an intimate conversation with the king and queen. Then there's, uh, you know, an intense speech that the king gives. Then the Green Knight shows up. Then there's a beheading. There's some magic. You know, it just it just is a huge scene. And to keep it interesting, um, over I think David, correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't it only like nine days? It was five days, but I think no, five days on that of of that. And then we it, we we encroached upon other scenes to like stretch it out to to seven. But it was it was really rough because we lost the king and queen at a certain date. So we had to block shoot all of their material first. And we were all exhausted because it was the very end of our shoot. And we walked onto that set on a Sunday to like kind of figure it out. They had just gotten it finished enough to where, you know, we'd had a model, we'd had floor plans. Andrew, you'd been able to work with Barry on how you're going to light it because of the, you know, all the, the, the planning they'd gone into it. But not a proper pre-light with the camera and everything. It was like we're coming on Monday and we're shooting. <laughs> yeah, we had what we had one day to look at it, and then one, and then we landed and started shooting. And it was uh, it was tough. It was definitely like that was that was a rough sequence to get through because at sometimes we were just like, okay, we have that line of dialogue on camera. At the very least, it exists. Let's move on. Like we we were we were really having to rush through all of that, and it as a result was the sequence that underwent the most revisions in the edit. You know, obviously that's where you start editorially because it's the beginning of the movie, but I just kept recutting and recutting that to give it the sense of intention that we sometimes didn't have on set because we were just having to fly through pages of material so quickly. Was that idea of that light, it's often a theme that kind of keeps coming back, um, that, that kind of like, kind of stronger light coming in through a dark space through a smaller window. Is that something that just kind of, kind of came out of the spaces? It was something thematic that you were thinking about and playing off. Yeah, I think it was largely just the spaces, David. I don't know if you had anything, anything deeper than that, but for me, just, I, I loved imagining him bathed in one single source. Um, and when I, when I think about a lot of these spaces, um, even historically, you know, they would only have a couple windows here and there and, and how much comes in. That's just, you know, that's where it comes from and that's all you're going to get. No, I mean, it obviously allowed for moments in which Gawain could become a hero temporarily because you could backlight him in a certain way. You could separate him from the from the rest of the of the court um, and then take that away as needed. But it also just, you know, in our research and looking at all of everything, it just felt like, you know, one thing that we, I remember at one point we described it as sort of like lighting a, a WWE wrestling match. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember why we settled on that as like a reference point because it's not actually right for what we were doing, but we definitely described it as that. But no, we wanted we wanted that fight to have like you know that that battle between I call it a battle, but that confrontation between Gawain and the Green Knight to have a sense of showmanship to it, and so it needed that bit of illumination. But we also didn't want the set to feel overlit, so putting that Oculus in the back and then the overhead one as well allowed us to like really separate the action and illuminate it in a way that was meaningful to the story while also keeping all the other parts of the the great hall a little bit more shadowy a little bit more moody and it it created a lot of different environments within that one set the wrestling thing came out of the idea that you, you mentioned that once they get to fighting you really wanted to feel everyone else sort of recede and so my thought was, oh, well, what if I just start blasting it brighter and brighter and brighter once the Green Knight shows up? 
um, because the candles are gone and now that's the only source and then everything else can go to black behind them. Um, but it was a challenge because the floors were so light that it often bounced back up and filled around. But I think that, you know, it's a classic like boxing, boxing look as well. You guys have both been generous of your time. I could keep talking about this one, but uh, it really, it was, it's, it, it's probably my favorite movie of the year. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful film. And it's uh, one that, that keeps reward. I know David, you wanted everybody to see it in the theaters, but it's one that uh, re- has been rewarding me at home. Um, uh, uh, rewatching it. I haven't seen it in the theaters. I haven't, I haven't either. I was in Budapest when it came out and, um, yeah, we we are both going to Poland in, uh, next week, so I'm definitely going to watch a little bit of it there, which is not customary to my normal. Uh, I can't normally watch movies that I made with people. Yeah, we were both we were both in production when the movie opened, so I almost I feel like I missed the opening of the movie entirely and have not seen it in a theater with an audience, which I normally don't do anyway. But like usually I'm like peripherally aware that it's out, and in this case it just was like I remember uh, getting back to the states after we wrapped. And it was still playing in a few theaters, and I went to go see Suicide Squad and just seeing a Green Knight poster at the adjacent theater and being like, oh, yeah, I forgot. This movie actually opened. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was funny. I, I, I had a personal situation, so I couldn't go into theaters, but um, I can't. It was a BB or someone. She's like, David's not going to let you have a screener. It's like, you can't have a screener. You got, you got to go to the theater. You got to go to the theater, which I respected at the time. Well, have fun in Poland. It's crazy out. It's you know, don't change your sleep cycle. Just 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 stay on just stay on LA time. <laughs> just stay on. That's great. I don't think it's gonna help my cold that uh, that I'm nursing, or maybe it will. Break this fever with some vodka and other spirits. Have you been talking to like Aaron Rodgers' doctor yes. or something here? <laughs> I have a cold. Gonna come <laughs> just drink vodka. <laughs> <laughs> That'll work. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both, uh, and, and congratulations on this one. Can't wait to see. Uh, can't wait to see Pan. And I, I'm not going to bother you with questions about that one. Congratulations and have fun. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. And just a reminder that today's podcast was brought to you by MGM Studios and United Artists Releasing's No Time to Die, produced by Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli, and directed by Carrie Fukunaga. Daniel Craig concludes his five-film portrayal of James Bond in No Time to Die. Joining forces with his MI6 team and a new generation of agents, Bond faces the highest stakes of his espionage career and emotionally explores the sacrifices of heroism. Critics are hailing No Time to Die will be remembered for its emotional impact above all. You can watch it everywhere you rent movies. It's for your consideration in all categories, including Best Picture of the Year. I love this film, and actually, uh, next week we're going to have Carrie and uh, his DP, Linus, talking about it. So it's really probably the best action film um, of the year. It's it's wonderful. <laughs>